You are listening to the Quarter to Three Games podcast for mid-January 2014. Uh, my name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not... Uh, I didn't think about this beforehand. Is not um, uh, <laughs> Magic the Gathering? How's that? Uh, this is where normally a co-host would come in uh, and say what his game of the week was not. But unfortunately, it's just me this week, at least for the beginning. Uh, what I'll be doing uh, this week is I'm about to talk to a fellow that I've been eager to speak to for a while. His name is Joel Toppin, and he is the designer of a board game called Navajo Wars, which uh, I, I wrote up a review of it on Quarter to Three a few weeks ago. I invite you to go read that. Uh, you can hear me burbling fondly about it and some of the really cool things that it does there. Uh, I'm about to sit down and speak with Joel about some of the, the his background, uh, some of his decisions behind some of the things that he did. You might be thinking, oh, I've never played Navajo Wars. I don't even play board games. What do I care? Please stick around, because I, I, I hope we made this interesting for you. My objective in speaking with Joel was to... Uh, talk at a level where people who don't know the game or who might not even be interested in it uh, could enjoy the conversation. Uh, I, I hope we've successfully done that, but I'll leave you to be the judge of that. Um, so uh, before we start, a couple of things. Uh, I, I'm terrible about this. I'm awful at social networking and plugging iTunes and stuff. So let me just say, and I get this out every now and then, please rate us on iTunes. Uh, I know we got a lot of folks listening. I'm really happy with our numbers, but we've only got like 40 iTunes ratings. Um, so if you get a chance, go there and give us however many stars you want. We just appreciate knowing that people care enough to click on that. We also, if you shop at Amazon.com, it helps us if you use our little search box. Uh, and we have a donate button. That's always appreciated as well. Uh, so there's that out of the way. Uh, also, before we go over to my conversation with Joel, um, I kind of wanted to apologize, even though I don't think there's any need for this. I asked him something that I think might come across as a, a little bit uh, uh, asshole-ish, and I didn't intend that. Um, I, I just want to make it clear that uh, I... I I try to be deeply respectful of people's religions, and I am fascinated that Joel is a pastor to a Navajo community, and yet he has made a game about the subversion of Navajo culture. And I wasn't trying to call him out or anything on uh, preaching Christianity to a Navajo community, uh, but I just wanted to hear how he would address that issue, and he handles himself gracefully, uh, and I think I might have come across as a jerk. So I want to apologize for that up front. That was not my intention, uh, and thanks to Joel for, for taking that in stride. Uh, so anyway, Navajo Wars, the podcast, uh, enjoy. I'll be back afterwards to tell you uh, about some of the things we didn't get to talk about that I wanted to address, uh, and who you can expect next week. Um, it is January, and I know... You're probably catching up on your backlog, playing a lot of video games. I am in this huge board gaming, uh, not a rut, I don't want to call it a rut, a streak, tear, uh, whatever. I'm, I'm playing a lot of board games. So uh, there's going to be more of that next week, I'm afraid. Uh, hopefully we can make that interesting for you if you're not into board games as well. Uh, so uh, there you go. Uh, enjoy my conversation with Joel Toppin, and I'll be back afterwards.
Joel Poppin. Uh, so I am curious, as uh, someone who's done a great job capturing my imagination lately with Navajo Wars, uh, tell me a bit about your background. A lot of times when I, when I come to a game that, that really hits me as hard as, as uh, Navajo Wars did, I go to Board Game Geek and you see that the person has a long list of credits. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, this is your, your first design? Yes, this is my, my first game design, uh, I guess, on my own. I've worked with a number of, of designers, and so that was, you know, obviously that was very helpful, but this is my first design where it's just me. Mm-hmm. And uh, tell me a bit about your background. Uh, what, what do you do? Do you have a day job? Uh, what did you study oh, yeah. in school? How, how did you come to this? Okay, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor, and I've played board games pretty much since uh, I was in high school. And so uh, I'd say around 2005, 2006, I started getting back into the hobby a little bit more. And I was, you know, fortunate enough to be able to get on board with some projects with GMT and uh, started developing games. And from there, uh, got an idea for a design of my own. And, you know, having worked with GMT in the past, it was it was actually a, you know, a little bit easier, I think, maybe to uh, get them to look at a design. And so that was it was just fortunate to be able to have that relationship in in my background to be able to uh you know have them look at the game because the game is on a topic that's you know let's, let's face it you know World War II American Civil War that kind of stuff sells but uh you know the the old American West on a tribe that's somewhat obscure I would say in the wargaming community uh you know that's kind of a off the beaten path topic this is obviously also a topic that's very personal to you, and I want to touch on that in a moment. But first, I'm curious, when you come to the guys at GMT that you're working with, these fellows you obviously know, uh, was it a hard sell? Because if you had come to me and said, hey, Tom, I want to make a game about the Navajo and their, their cultural struggles, I would have immediately been like, yeah, Joel, do that. Uh, was that the reaction you got at GMT? Did you have to push it? How did that go? <laughs> no, well, the, the first... Uh the first reaction was well. The, the the first look at the design was uh, I felt sorry. Feel sorry for the guys now because it was really bad. Um, Just in the sense that it was a first draft and it, yeah, it was a, a first lot of work. draft. The game right. it was it was not fun. It was way more detailed than it ended up being. <laughs> uh, way too much simulation, not enough game. Uh-huh. Uh, and so they they provide me with some guidance, but I kind of got the impression that this was this was a topic that they were afraid would not sell. And so it wasn't that they didn't want to do something in the off the beaten path. It was just that, you know, are people really going to buy something on, you know, this kind of a topic? I think that they, it might have been something of a struggle for them, you know, and it's unjustly so because, you know, they're running a business and so they want something that's going to sell. Now, uh, I've, I've heard you describe the game on another podcast as a 300-year a uh, guerrilla war. And uh, it obviously, in your design, it has a focus on cultural survival uh, more than any sort of traditional conquest or anything. Uh, it is, of course, very centered around the, the Navajo culture. Um, is there any sort of precedent for this kind of game? I know in the designer's notes you mentioned an Avalon Hill game called Geronimo. Um, but as far as your particular approach, uh, is this as unprecedented as I think that it is? Yes. Um, in fact, that's what made writing the rules so difficult uh, for me was I didn't really have anything to 
you know, kind of base it on. And I think it's, it makes it a little bit harder for the new person who's never seen the game before uh, to learn the game because there's really nothing else like it out there. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's, um, I think that's an accurate, you know, appraisal that it's very different and that I don't know of anything else out there like it. Now, what is Geronimo Wars like? Is it more of a traditional conquest uh, territory struggle? Okay, well, Geronimo is it's an Avalon Hill. It's one of the later games that they produced, uh, circa, what, 1994, maybe? Mm-hmm. Um, it, um, it uses the state lines, interestingly enough, as the as the areas in the game, which is a, it's a fair, you know, uh, abstraction, mm-hmm. except that it's, there's dozens of tribes involved, and it plays best with the maximum complement of players. I think it seats like five, maybe six. I'd have to double check. It's been a while since I pulled and it out. is the idea that each player is a different part of the, this Apache yeah, nation? Yeah, each player controls uh, several different tribes. Um you, the tribes are, are handled by cards. It's very difficult to get tribes to cooperate with one another, which is, is historical. Uh, there's events involved. It's a Richard Berg game, so there is a fair amount of detail involved. And one of the players at the table, let's say it's a four-player game, three of the players will be uh, handling Native American tribes, First Nations tribes, and the other player will be uh, in charge of the United States forces. Ah. Obviously, the United States forces are very powerful. It's a victory point-based game. So whoever has the United States has probably the best chance, especially later in the game, of scoring points. The only flaw in the game, and I've talked with other players on the, that have played and enjoyed Geronimo, because it's a very innovative game, was that whoever got to play the Americans last uh, had a, had an advantage. So if you if you read some of the reviews and stuff on on BGG, you're, you're going to encounter that 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 was a concern. I'd love to see the game redone. Right. But that's that's basically how Geronimo works. So, but it sounds like for for Navajo Wars, there really wasn't any uh, format or precedent, or there was there was no sort of foundation now, for you to build on. It was kind and of as crazy. a matter of fact, I wanted to keep the players. I wanted the players to play the natives. I wanted to take the story from the native point of view and have the AI run the United States, the Mexicans, and so forth. Uh, because I'm thinking my friend, Navajo Wargamer as well, I'm thinking he's not going to want to play the United States against the Navajo. So okay. that's where I was coming from. So you, you mentioned in the designer's notes, which uh, I think even if uh, folks haven't played the game, even if they don't know the game, are a great read. Uh, do you know if those are available online, by the way? Is there a way you can read your, your Navajo Wars designer notes without owning the game? I don't know if they've actually posted the uh, the playbook online. Okay. Well, you, you do mention in, in the designer's notes a couple of times your, your friend, uh, I, I gather he was a childhood friend of yours, a fellow named Charles Lee. You even mentioned him by name. Um, has, has Do you still keep in touch with him? And more to the point, has he seen this game? Oh yeah, he he's uh, actually he's in the Air Force now, and he stopped by on leave uh, around the holidays and uh, picked up a, a copy from his his mom uh, had uh, pledged a couple copies of the game, and they wanted me to sign them and stuff. And uh, she was just kind of thrilled that um, you know I mentioned that he was a, a major inspiration in the the, the design effort. Right. And so yeah, he's got a copy of it now, and uh, I'm hoping he's enjoying it. Now, you do mention in the, in the designer's notes as well, Joel, that uh, 
this very quickly became a solitaire game. You didn't want this to be, uh, and it sounds like Geronimo was like this, a head-to-head game where it's the goal of one of the players uh, to destroy the, the Navajo nation, the, their people. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, so I, I just want to briefly, as a tangent, sort of ask, uh, is that Im- important to you? Do, you? do you feel similarly about war games that, say, include the Wehrmacht from World War II? Uh, should, let me put it this way. Should there be moral restrictions on what board games model? Um, when it comes to World War II, I really don't have a problem... Um, with any of that, or even American Civil War, I can see in some areas people might have moral qualms. I really can't say I've ever encountered that. The reason for that particular choice with this game mm-hmm. was I looked at how other games, re- some recent games were, uh, they got some bad press. Specifically, I'm thinking of uh, MMP re- released a game about uh, King Philip's War. It's a great game. I really enjoy the game, but it got some bad press with the uh, the tribes of that area, um, and I think that they perhaps overreacted to what the game was really about. That it actually sheds light on a on a topic that really should be you know looked at, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to encounter that here um, because I live among the Navajo, and I, I really didn't want any bad press, and I wanted to present it in a way that was honorable mm-hmm. and that would uh, that would re- reflect well on the Navajo people. So I wanted to be sensitive to, you know, how they view their history as well. And that was the main reason for that particular design choice. Sure. Um, if you take me to other games, I have no problem playing SS units and whatnot in, in ASL and, and other games like that. No, no problem with that. Uh, fair enough, and it also, it, it sounds like it, it, in a way, is more of a, a personal decision than a philosophical one. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and I have to say also, Joel, I'm, I'm very glad you made it a solitaire game, because it, it, it partly makes the experience unique. It becomes this very, one of the things that really struck me about the game is it elicits a kind of an emotional reaction that I'm not sure would be the case if I was sitting across the table from another person engaging him socially, thinking about how I could use these systems to either beat him or collaborate with him, uh, just sitting alone at a dining room table with the board spread out in front of me, referencing the rules, every now and then pondering what I'm going to do next. Uh, it creates a very different space to react emotionally uh, and even intellectually to what it's modeling. So f- for that reason, I'm, I'm very glad that, that it's solitaire. Um, but one of the things that I came to over the course of playing it uh, and you also uh, steered me to Hampton Side's excellent book, Blood and Thunder, uh, which you mentioned in, in the designer's notes. One of the things that I came to after reading Blood and Thunder uh, was how, how gray and murky and difficult the situation was on all sides, and that it wasn't just a simple matter of the U.S. necessarily trying to destroy the, the Navajo, as um, just a lot of, of ignorance and miscommunication uh, and mismatched power relationships, uh, and how the Navajo were kind of a victim of that, uh, and, and how so often that there was plenty of malice, but so often the, the tragedy was a, was a factor of just ignorance and just doing stupid things, like Bosque Redondo, for instance, where the Navajo were marched. The idea was partly to protect them. Um, so, so to just hear that, uh, to, to hear you talk about how you wanted to avoid a game about destroying the Navajo, I couldn't help but think that 
it, it was never quite that simple. And there, yeah. there's still a lot of fascinating things that could have been modeled if the Americans had been a playable faction, for, for instance. Um, so uh, let, let's see. I, I want to. Um, I also want to ask you. Uh, you uh, you say you're a, you're a pastor. Um, yeah. Do you do you mind if I ask uh, what denomination? I'm I'm a pastor with the uh, Assemblies of God. Okay. And um, it, do you work specifically with with is part of your congregation uh, Navajo? I'd say about eighty five to ninety percent of our congregation is Navajo. Oh, that's fantastic, Joel. Now. Uh, let me ask you another sort of tricky question, and, and mainly I'm not trying to hit you with a gotcha. I just want to know how you would respond to this. Um, a huge part of the topic of, of Navajo Wars is is their cultural integrity, trying to preserve their cultural traditions. Um, you specifically have a mechanic where the forts arrive late in the game as part of the American campaign, and they kind of leech culture away from the Navajo, and it becomes hard to score points um, which is the gameplay mechanic for whether or not the Navajo have preserved their own culture. Um, as a pastor, uh, do, do you feel that, that preaching Christianity to the Navajo, does that in any way sort of create any difficulty for you as a guy who made a game about the Navajo <laughs> trying to preserve their cultural integrity? And I'm sorry if that sounds like I'm no, being uh, a dick or, yeah. No, I, I, I get where you're coming from. Actually, um, my work on the game and my research into the culture um, actually has influenced a lot of the ways in which I choose to present Christianity mm-hmm. because uh, it's my view that Christianity is not a uh, – it, it's, uh, it's a belief system that can be culturally relevant anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And – Learning the, a lot more about the Navajo and their culture, uh, finding ways to present Christianity in a way that's a lot more culturally sensitive. That uh, that's been something that I've taken uh, from the research behind the game, and my research in the game showed how a lot of the the early missionaries they did a lot of harm, and not just with the Navajo, but pretty much with most of uh, Native Americans in general. They did a tremendous amount of harm and a great disservice. Uh, to the people, and uh, especially, you know, it's not modeled in the game, but after the events portrayed by the game, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, most most Native American families were uh, deprived of their children. The government stepped in and, uh, you know, forcibly removed children from their homes, put them in boarding schools. Well, those boarding schools were mostly run by churches. Right. And it... It, it's created a lot of harm that continues to this day, and has created a lot of resentment toward uh, toward Christian people. And we're trying to, you know, right some of those wrongs. So when I was designing Navajo Wars, I chose not to gloss over the harm that was done in the past and present uh, what I felt were the facts of the matter in an objective manner. I, I can't tell you how encouraging, Joel, it is to hear that you, as, as a pastor in the Assembly of God, uh, can sort of appreciate that nuance. Um, and, and I love hearing you talk that way. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay, so let, I, I want to talk about some specifics of the game, but part of my concern is that I want people who are listening to this, who haven't played Navajo Wars, to, to be able to uh, understand the conversation. So uh, I want to keep in mind that pretend that we're talking to people who don't know the game yet. Uh, and... I, and that said, I do have some very specific questions about the game. So I might uh, 
pause every now and then to explain some things that are very evident to you and I, because you made the game and, I, and I've played it. Uh, the first thing I, I want to talk about uh, is the, the this map that you have made. Uh, it's it's a beautiful map. It doesn't have there's n- there's not a hex to be found on it. Uh, it looks like something that maybe uh, the the Navajo might have laid out to to plan something that maybe even I imagine Navajo children might play with. Uh, it has colorful stones. Um, and, and I heard you mention on another podcast that when you first saw the map, you you didn't like it. Yeah, yeah. Joel Toppin, what on earth? Because when I first saw this map, I was like, that's gorgeous. I can't wait to play this. <laughs> what was your problem when you first saw the map? It was it, it was not what I was expecting, okay? okay. Uh, if you saw on Board Game Geek, I, what I had thrown together for playtest was more like, um, like a piece of parchment tacked to a board – and was a little bit more like the the areas that are portrayed by stone in the the, the printed copy were actually squares, and the, I wasn't quite sure what to make of the stones. I kind of liked the bowls, the three di- yep. three dimensional look of the bowls, but I really wasn't sure about those stones. And I came back to my computer and I looked at it again a couple hours later, and thought, you know what? Um, one of the problems with my playtest map was when I had the square counters on the square area spaces, that sometimes it wasn't exactly clear what territory that piece was in. Mm-hmm. And by having the irregular shape of these, it would overlap the game piece and perhaps actually be more playable than my playtest map was. And that's what started to warm me to the idea. And so the more I looked at it, the more I started to like it. So I showed it to my wife, and she she thought it was really fantastic looking. Uh, and the playtester, I think uh, Mike had sort of the same reaction. His first look was, that was not what I was expecting. But we, wo- we both warmed to it pretty quick. We didn't have any objections with it at all after a while. After a while, I was like, man, that ought to frame that thing. Yeah, it, it also says to me, Joel, the moment I see it, uh, this game is unique. You know, this is going to take a different approach. This is not your usual uh, game. And you, you very stealthily, just the way the game is so carefully built around six-sided dice, and you mentioned this in the designer's notes as well, that's not evident when you first look at it. You know, I don't look at that and think, oh, this guy's just trying to make something where a D6 can drive everything. Uh, that's really stealthed under the aesthetic, I, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, something else that I really like uh, about the game um, is this AI system that you've created. And when I, when I wrote about Navajo Wars on Quarter to Three, uh, I, I mentioned that it, it creates this idea of looking at an opponent. Because when you play Navajo Wars, depending on which campaign you're playing, your opponent is either the, the Spanish colonists, the newly independent Mexican settlements, or the Americans. So when you're playing Navajo Wars, their actions are represented by a column of chits that you are working through in sequence. But what can happen is that those chits can abruptly change. And where you think an action might come up, maybe a chit is going to turn over to its other side or a new one is going to swap in. So it creates this idea of your opponent has a very clear sequence of, of actions. You know what's coming, but every now and then, one of those is going gonna, is gonna to just randomly change on you. And it creates this idea of, of an erratic opponent who you can't quite understand. Yeah. Um, 
tell me about how you hit on this, and, and was this difficult? Was there a eureka moment? Did you know early on this is how the, the AI was going to be driven? Uh, how did this come about? I really cannot explain it. It just came to me. Um, I just started pushing around some pieces, and I was trying to think of a system whereby the enemy would almost always have the initiative on me, but whereby I might be able to purchase the initiative by spending action points to preempt the enemy. And then I, I figure I can use these, these action points from the enemy to execute different orders, I think is what I might have called them earlier on. And then gradually I started to see how elegantly I could simulate, give the player the sensation that he's facing an opponent that's thinking intelligently. Mm-hmm. Rather than, you know, a lot of solitaire games, they're, they're fun, they're challenging, but you don't feel like you're facing an opponent that's thinking. And I wanted it to feel like you're, you're facing somebody that's, that's thinking against you, whose behavior would modify according, you know, to things outside the player's control, and where it would force the player to react to the AI, and then the AI would start to do something different. So, that's where I came up with the idea of, you know, the chits swapping places, flipping over. And, of course, if you play the game, you know it always happens at the worst possible moment. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. It, it really does. It's a, it's a great variation on the usual solitaire AI, which is either a deck of cards or a die roll uh, or a table. And, and, by the way, you certainly have those. But in addition, there, there's these chits over here, and they're, they're constantly present on the right side of the board. Uh, so... Uh, you mentioned the little bowls, the little three-dimensional bowls uh, on on the board, and the raid cubes go in there. Uh, I, I want to take exception with what what you I might call your interface on on two very specific things that are kind of nitpicks. Um, but the the first interface quote unquote problem I have with Navajo Wars is the chits, the the cubes. I mean for the raid, uh, and what these represent. I'll tell folks is. Uh, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of your activity will involve raiding the the settlements in, in Santa Fe, and that's represented by uh, a handful of cubes that you draw blindly from these cubes. And some cubes represent the spoils, like livestock or, or slaves, uh, and others represent some sort of a military reprisal. So you're pulling from these cubes, and the more you take out you sort of get a sense for what's left in the bag, you know, how much closer you are to provoking a military response. Uh, so one of the things that I, I love knowing when I play Navajo Wars is exactly how many cubes are left of what color. So I just want to say, Joel, I hate that bag, and instead I have a little tiny bowl that I leave out, and all of the cubes are in there so I can see exactly how many of which color are left. Uh, so and and that's yeah you know um, the bag was actually something that I thought if we don't include this someone's going to have a problem with it (laughs) so I asked them to to throw that in but the bag is way oversized and personally when I was at a uh, Consum World Expo, oh, maybe like three years back, uh, Strategy and Tactics magazine was giving away these ginormous coffee mugs. And they make great uh, uh, receptacles for drawing chits out of. So that actually works much better for my personal uh, use. But I've, I've seen on uh, Board Game Geek that uh, someone else, his wife, made him a little, a tiny little bag to draw them out of. It's And other people use different things. But 
Yeah. yeah, that's the story on the bag. <laughs> and, and I just I like being able to see exactly what is left. Like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm there, the same way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so here's my other interface issue. And again, this is just nitpicking, Joel. Uh, they're intruder counters that represent uh, Navajo encounters with, uh, with with trappers or travelers or settlers. And they're basically little face-down chits, and you, you need to go over to the chit and flip it over. It's normally something good, but there's some bad things in there. So every now and then you place one on the board face-down. Uh, similarly, the way that, that agriculture works is that when you have a family in a territory and, and that family's activity is to plant corn, you draw a corn chip and you put it face down. Uh, what you recommend, or, or I think what the rules say, is you're supposed to put the chits in a cup. So if I do that, when I pull a chit out and then look at which side I'm supposed to put face down, I might accidentally see what's on the other side. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, uh, that, several people have asked me about that. Maybe it's the, just the way I, I work, but I can tell by the feel of the game piece which ah, side is which. Okay, okay. What I have to do is put it on a table face down in, in just a cluster where I only see the other side of the tiles. Yeah, it just makes them up like, like Scrabble tokens. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's talk about, uh, again, one of my favorite things. You put into this game... This, this very historically meticulous, culturally sensitive, um, evocative game about, uh, about uh, a people, a uh, huge part of our history. You put into this game, Joel, a freaking skill tree. <laughs> it's like Diablo. It reminds me of Diablo, where I level up and I get to pick a skill. Um, I, I love that about it, and I love how it tweaks the rules and adds replayability. Uh, there are... Is it six, eight? How many different skills are there? Uh, the game comes with, I want to say, eight sets, five okay. of which will be in play any given game. Ah, right, right. That's it. Is it some of them get removed early on? And each skill has three levels. So if I want the third level of a skill, I can't just grab it. I have to get the first two levels. So I'm building, as I play, my own character build, so to speak, for the Navajo. Uh, tell me about how this came about, because it's a, it's a lovely touch. That was an, that was an early decision. We wanted to have some kind of a we called them techs or tech trees. Um, we wanted to have something like that in there, and it took several different forms. Uh, originally, it was like a tree that uh, you could put tokens on to to mark your progress, and it just uh, wasn't very evocative for me. And I thought I've got room with the publisher for a few extra cards, like twenty five more cards. So why not? just use cards for these. And so that was the decision to use that particular um, uh, media for the, the text or the culture of cards. But it was a, that was a, one of the early decisions. Now, they they morphed a little bit as we play tested. We made some – we had to flip some, make, make some of the level twos, level threes, and whatnot based on play tests. We found out some texts were a little bit too strong, so we had to dial them back. And that was probably one of the harder things to play test and because there's so many different combinations that you can encounter. We were trying to figure out, well, which ones break the game and which ones don't. That's probably one of the toughest things it was to play test in the game. Actually, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you is what was the toughest system, so to speak, to get working right? And, and what you say was the victory tech segment. Ah, well, okay. So here, uh, tell me about that. So that uh, oh. obviously, uh, just to explain for folks listening, you use a, uh, a, a deck of kind of event cards, and on every turn you flip one over, and seated throughout these cards at very particular places, 
You don't know exactly when an event is coming up, but you know within certain parameters, within how many cards it's going to come up. Uh, a, a, a historical event, a sort of a scripted, hard-coded historical event happens, and that's where you do a victory point check. Um, so explain why this was tough to get working correctly, Joel. Okay, well, originally the game didn't have this kind of a, like a sudden death, you could lose the game right here kind of a, a thing that would happen periodically. And it was Gene Billingsley of, of GMT Games that asked me to implement that in the game. And so, you know, when a smart game designer who also runs a company tells me, hey, I think it needs this, I'm going to listen to him. Now, when you say implement that, you mean a sort of a sudden death, uh, a, a failure state? Yeah, he wanted point? something that would happen periodically where you could lose the game if you don't meet, like, a certain threshold. Mm-hmm. And so... I took that home and I started to work on it, tweak it, and I came up with the victory check segment, and it, which can function like that. You can lose the game outright at one of those victory checks if, if things go badly enough. Mm-hmm. So what was hard about it was getting the math to do what I wanted it to do and figuring out, well, what, what should the victory points be for the areas? And um, I don't know, tweaking that took the better part of an entire summer uh, I can't tell you how many games we played over and over again. And, of course, because every game is different, um, that also complicates the, the play balance mechanic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was that was by far the hardest mechanic. That and balancing the culture cards was the two hardest things for playtesting. Are, are you... Um... If there's one area of the game that you, and, and not to ask you to, to criticize an area of the game, but if there's one area of the game that you feel you you, you maybe could have done a little more work on or that you feel uh, could, could use improvement, um, it, it, well, let me put it this way. Is there any area of the game that you'd wish you'd had more time to either refine or bang on or change or a- adapt? You know, maybe it's, maybe it's just me, but... Uh the victory check segment, I wish there was uh, a smoother way of doing it, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, maybe some, there's got to be a simpler way. I kept searching for a simpler way, a more elegant way to project this, uh, this periodic, you know, checking of the situation and determining whether the player, you know, is clear to go on in the game or, or can lose right now. Sure. I would. I'd like to, that. That's one area where I, I think that maybe there's a better way to do it. But it, you know, it is what it is. That's what I came up with. And you know, once we had it balanced, you know, and they said, "Here's the production dates." It really wasn't time to go back and rehash <laughs> that thing. Well, so. to, to add to what you're saying, Joel, I want to say something uh, critical and something positive about that segment of the game. Uh, on the critical front. Um, one of the things that I really like about your design, about Navajo Wars, is all of these these unique, cool, evocative systems, whether it's that, that raid bowl or it's the culture cards. The population model is, as I've said, it's a, it's a thing of absolute poignant beauty. I love that about it. The map. There are all of these great systems. And one of the things that I, I can't help but uh, kind of feel disappointed in when it happens is that all of these systems eventually come down to a, a a score track, which is fine. So many games work that way. But considering how many other unique bits and pieces there are going on, I just can't help but feel a little disappointed that, oh, I'm only on level six, whereas this chit's on level seven. I've lost. Uh, 
so, so that's one area where I do kind of feel uh, disappointed with that victory point check. But the flip side of that, one of the things that I've come to learn about that victory point check and what I feel is is unique to the, your setting and to the people that you're modeling is it's really taught me uh, when you're playing Navajo Wars, the whole point is to understand the difficulty of having a culture, a nation, a people in this terrain and that you can't cluster them together. That ultimately Navajo Wars, in addition to preserving your culture, to keeping your families whole, it's about not it's about spreading out over the land and surviving as best you can in this very difficult territory. And those victory checks really bring that home. When I'm playing, I constantly realize I need a family over here. I need a family over there. I need a child in this family. Uh, it's all about making these people survive in this difficult land. Uh, and I think that's a beautiful thing that happens as those checks come up is that you're so cognizant of that aspect of, of Navajo life. Um, yeah, it it, um, it definitely does make you think about. I mean, you have you have certain amount of military potential where you can project power and drive the enemy out of a certain area. Of, but if one of those checks comes up, if you're expecting one of those things could happen soon, you know, it could catch you in a really bad place and actually actually just you know decimate you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's, I think, how a lot of people's games go when they're playing, is you're, you're trucking along and you're playing and you get some horrible one-two combo like that. Uh, what, what's the card where in the two lower uh, areas where the Zuni and the Hopi are that they oh, just yeah. take out a family? What's that card called? Um, uh, yeah, it's uh, Pueblo War in the yeah. World. Oh, God, I hate that card, Joel. Please remove that from the game. <laughs> but because that, that, when that hits you and then a scoring card, like it, it's, I, it's fair because I know it's in there and I know it can happen, but it's so painful. <laughs> yeah, it's, that card's just pure evil. Uh, so the, uh, uh, it, It's the balance to the card that takes a red cube out of the subjugation bowl. Right, right. Well, well the thing that's, is, that's a real good card to get. Of course, if you're like me, you get that card too early and it doesn't help you at all. <laughs> well, it's the flip side is that just as something horrible can happen, you can also have this this game where you get this amazing advantage early on that you can push. Uh, it's just the nature of, I think, a solitaire board game where you're not having to balance it where each player has an equal chance of winning. Uh, for a solitaire narrative-driven experience, th- that sort of evil or pleasant twist, that's fine. I'm certainly okay with yeah. that. Uh, I do have a question about, okay, so one of the intruder chits um, is called uh, a skinwalker. Yeah. And uh, is that, are you, are, is that supernatural? What, what is a skinwalker modeling? Okay. The, uh, there is a strong belief in this area. Mm-hmm. And people that I know that are not, they're not kooky people, okay? There's dead serious as a heart attack. I mean, some of these guys are police officers, okay? then they swear to me that they have seen this phenomenon. And the idea is that uh, a witch, a Navajo witch or witch doctor, shaman of some sort, um, starts dabbling around in in some black arts, for lack Mm -hmm. of a better term, Mm -hmm. takes an animal's skin, puts it on him, and shapeshifts. Kind of like that dude in The Hobbit, right? Sure, Um, Bjorn, that that Bear yeah. right, right. And so they'll take on the shape of a, of a bear. A more, most common one is a coyote. The people, the Navajo people, are very um, superstitious, mm-hmm. I, I would say. And I, I'm taking that from a European uh, cultural mindset. From my point of view, 
I would categorize a lot of people as being perhaps overly superstitious, but that's coming from my background. I would think that I think that from their point of view, they're not looking at that at all. And I think they look at me as you don't take this serious enough. OK, <laughs> but they're absolutely terrified. I mean, the whole community be, can be just be terrified of this. And the inspiration for the token came from Mike Berticelli, the developer who was watching an episode of Navajo Cops on uh, a National Geographic channel. And that's on Netflix, by the way, so you can check it out. It's one of the first episodes on there where they're talking about skinwalkers. He said, what is this? So I told him what it's about, and he says, can we put that in the game? And I thought, you know what? We can. So the idea is what what that token does is if you reveal an intruder and it's a skinwalker, if you have action points stowed up, you lose them all. And what that represents is a community becoming absolutely freaked out by this phenomenon. If you don't have any action points and you reveal that, then you get action points equal to the number of elders that you have in play. And what that symbolizes is the elders have proven that the phenomenon is false. There is no skinwalker. <laughs> so that is that is the yeah, that's how how that works. In the game. Very nice. Very nice. So I have to confess, Joel, I, I mean, I've heard the term before, but uh, I know most recently about it from a, a dippy little found footage horror movie called uh, Skinwalker Ranch. <laughs> Which, as you can imagine, it's the same thing. It's, it's just a, a dumb horror movie playing on this idea of a shapeshifter terrorizing a bunch of stupid teenagers. Uh, yeah. so, uh, okay, let's talk finally about your, your population model. Uh, you, you hit on the word eventually families to represent a chit on the board, and each chit on the board uh, is a basically location marker, but along the bottom of the board, it marks that it can consist of of a man, a woman, a child. Uh, they can have, I believe, uh, a horse. They can be a mounted unit. Um, so these aren't literally families, of course. You struggled with different terms for it. I think early on a term you mentioned in, in the designer's notes was outfits. Um, so the, this population model uh, to represent uh, a people without central authority who are semi-nomadic um, – and who suffer things like like missing women and children or husbands killed in war, you know, a shortage of men. Uh, I really love what you've done with this population model. And you mentioned in, in the designer's notes that it's something that went through several forms before you arrived at this, this form. Uh, how could the population model have been different if one of these earlier forms had been used? It was much more detailed before. Um, in fact, it was overly detailed before. Like I said, the game early on was more simulation than uh, game, and so it and it so the fun factor is you know lacking. So I found a way to just simplify but achieve the same effect of the more complex model using you know much less complex subsystems. So that's. It's its present form now was was uh, basically a simplification of what I had before. When, when you say so, when you're talking about the the game and how you've worked on it and how the design has come about, I notice you keep using first person plural. When you say we, uh, I presume this is something that was a you did a lot of interactive work with the people at GMT or with with play testers. Uh, describe for me how how this was a collaborative process. When how you keep using okay. The word when we. I say yeah, when I say we, I'm talking about people that were play testing. I should say people that I abused by having them play test <laughs> early versions of it. Um, it was their view that the population model was was too complex, so I went back and reworked it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I pitched the game to GMT 
twice. The first time it was pretty much rejected out of hand because it simply wasn't fun. It was too much simulation, not enough game. Uh, and then the do second have, time, do you have Joel like a prototype or is it design? Yeah, I took, a, I took a prototype to the GMT weekend out in Hanford okay. at the warehouse. And what, they, what is that, by the way? What's the GMT weekend? Oh, GMT weekend. Uh, if you're not familiar with this, is great. It's one of the best gaming weekends around. They do it in April and October. And you find the details on their website or on Consum World. But basically, they open up the website to you know anywhere from 50 to 70 guys will show up for this thing from like Thursday through Sunday, I think, and just play games in the warehouse. And <laughs> you're surrounded by these you know walls of, of all their games, and uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. And so you showed up to one of these with a with a, a prototype for Navajo Wars. They're like, nah, that's not going to work. Uh, but that that didn't deter you. No, uh, well, you know, obviously it's discouraging when someone <laughs> rejects, you know, <laughs> you put hours of work into something and they reject it out of hand. You're like, okay, so maybe this isn't nearly as cool as I thought. And uh, so the second time I think was maybe, oh, I think the first time I brought it was in an October and then next April I brought Let's Take Two. And I brought it in such a way that I thought, you know what, I put a lot of work in this. This is my last shot at it. I'm going to show it off. If they don't like it, I'll, I'll show it to somebody else. and just, Or maybe I'll just give up on the whole thing and work on something different, maybe a topic that's maybe a little bit more popular. Mm-hmm. And actually, Steve Carey, uh, I think I credited him on the game box. Basically, without this guy, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done it. But he saw me come in schlepping this uh, tube with the map and stuff in it. And he says, Hey, he'd heard about the project. He loved the idea of the game and just hated that first model. He wanted to take it for a spin. So I started to show him what I worked on. And the game was radically different now than, than what the first version was. It was a lot more like its final form and he just really loved it. And so he put in a really good word with, you know, with the GMT folks on it and, they uh, and they decided, okay, here's what we'd like you to do to the game. They had me do a few more things, and then I think it was in August that they decided to put it on P500. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that it's out, now that people have gotten their hands on it, it's been released to the wild, so to speak. Uh, what's the most surprising feedback that you've gotten? Like, have you heard people say anything about it that you didn't expect they would say? I was afraid the game was too complex. Mm-hmm. Um, when I when I uh, finished the, the game. I kind of felt bad because I thought, you know, if I'd made it a much more simple game, I could, you know, take it down to some of the trade shops we have here in town. I mean, the stones that you see on the board, you can find them at any of the trading posts, you know, tourist places here in town. And, you know, you find those things there. And a game of this sort is a lot more involved than your casual gamer could, you know, appreciate. Sure. So... That what what was surprising to me was how people seem to enjoy the complexity of the game, the richness, I guess, of the game. That kind of surprised me, and it made me kind of do a double take on the second game that I'm working on now, and re-examine what I what I'd put together, and make the the second game maybe feel a little bit more like this one. So the the second game, which uh, I think it's okay, I, I don't know how much you can talk about it, but you are you have said elsewhere that you are working on a game based on the Comanche, uh, yes. and that it'll it'll involve more of the idea of conquest uh, yeah. and um, the the military struggles of the Comanche. Uh, 
do you intend to, and you may not even know the answer to this yet, but do you intend to carry over many or any of the systems from Navajo Wars into a Comanche-themed game? The game is going to be modeled differently because the people are entirely different than the Navajo were. However, that said, there are going to be a number of mechanics, including the AI, that's going to feel very similar. So if, you, if you've played Navajo Wars, you'll be able to grasp the rules of, of Comancheria is the, the working title. You'll be able to, to grasp the rules and the subsystems and learn it pretty quick. But there's a number of things that are going to be different mm-hmm. on the Comanche game. Uh, and is there a – there may not be, but is there a uh, timeline yet? Like, for instance, this time next year, will I be playing Comancheria this summer? Uh, can you even say anything about that? Can't really say anything about that. I mean, I work on it when I've got time. I don't have a whole lot of free time these days, but um, i got to work on it when the creative juices are flowing, as they say. I get a great idea. I wish they wouldn't happen at 3 o'clock in the morning. but you know. <laughs> Especially when you have to get up the next morning. Yeah, right? <laughs> but – I mean, I get a good idea. I start working on it, and uh, it's coming along pretty good. I've done quite a bit of work here in the last, actually, the last two weeks on it. So I'm hoping to have something playable uh, for the next GMT weekend, actually. It's kind of a goal. Uh, and so There's a whole process it's got to go through before it can get on P500 and you know sure. go through all of that and get into the production queue. Uh, I have to ask, do you know, uh, there's a writer named Cormac McCarthy, uh, and there's a book called Blood Meridian. Uh, do you know that book by any chance? Afraid I don't. So there's a, uh, I think it's one of the more famous passages. There's like a, a four-page description of a Comanche attack on a, a very ill-prepared military column that is, it's this uh, R-rated, violent, gory, unforgettable depiction of a, of a Comanche attack. Uh, it's very much from the, the, the white European perspective, but when I think of someone making a, a game about the Comanche, I can't help but think of that passage from, from Blood Meridian. Um, do, do, you, uh, do you by any chance know any, uh, any video gaming? Like, are you familiar with any video gaming depictions of, of American Indians? I want to say uh, I, I don't play a whole lot of uh, video games anymore, um, but I know that there was one of the... Um, Total War games that involved uh, the American West. I don't remember which one it was. Rise of Empires or something like that uh, might have had. I think they had an expansion that included the American West. Right. Uh, yeah, it's a it's an odd like it, video games have kind of struggled with this, and it's one of the things I really like about Navajo Wars is how you've sort of managed to create this this sensitive recreation of the experience. And video games have been struggling with it in different and sometimes interesting ways for at least a couple of decades. But yeah. so, so those of us who have uh, Navajo Wars, if I'm not mistaken, haven't you made available a couple of additional cultural advancement cards that we can download and print? Or yeah, I I, I threw this out there um, just as a Christmas gift. You know, I really appreciate all the people that bought the game and. I know that the rules are not as clean as, as – I, I mean, I'm not happy with some of the things that happened. There are some things that were out of my control, and there's some things that were in my control. But, you know, once you've read the rule book so many times, I think in the final proofing, I was seeing what I thought was there rather than what was really there. So I thought, let me just throw this out there as a Christmas present. So uh, the second – or the first expansion is got uh, 
six new cards. You got to print them out yourself. But uh, I think they're really interesting cultural development cards. I I get a real kick out of playing with them, especially the adaptivity uh, cultural development. Which, if I'm not, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, the adaptivity uh, it allows the 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 Diné, the Navajo, to be more adaptive. And uh, the level three card is perhaps the most interesting because what it allows you to do, and this is, again, that tech tree, the level three adaptivity card allows you to take a, uh, a level two or a level one card from any other suit that's in play and use that temporarily. And then you can, you know, recharge that ability later on. I mean, you can dump that card and then, you know, pick another level one or level two card later on. It allows your people to be much more flexitive to a rapidly changing situation. Sort of a tech tree wild card. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so finally, before I let you go, Joel, uh, I so GMT, you, you showed them the first draft. They were like, nah, maybe not. You showed them the second one. You, you mentioned, I think you said his name was Steve Carey, was instrumental in shepherding you through the process, getting this done. Uh, can you say anything about uh, how or whether successful it is? Uh, it, uh, how, how does GMT feel about how this game has done for them? Do you have a sense of that? From what I hear, I think that they're, I think that they're happy with how it's, how it's done. Um, I, I have to say, I think that when I look at their catalog, it, it stands out. Like I, I can understand their reservation might be, there's really nothing like this. But I also look at that as a unique selling point and, and an asset yeah. for the game. Well, there's nothing like Conquest of Paradise either, uh, which is another game I admire of theirs. Uh, it's not a solitaire game, but it's you know Polynesian history. What other game is there on there? There's not a whole lot on that. So, um, <laughs> Joel, so I don't, I don't know if have a game off the beaten path like that, but I I get the sense that it's selling pretty good. I don't know if you realize this, Joel. You might have just cost me fifty dollars or whatever Conquest of Paradise is. I don't know anything about it, but when you just now said the title and said Polynesian history, I was like, oh damn, I got I got to check that out. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those games that kind of sat on their catalog, didn't sell terribly well, I, I think, at first. But then I think a few groups got a hold of it and thought, hey, you know what? This actually is a really good game. It's it's kind of a 4X-type game, uh-huh. but where you're exploring the South Pacific and you're trying to conquer islands from other islanders. and It's a pretty cool game. All Not right. there. Thanks for thanks for costing me whatever that's gonna whatever <laughs> the price of that is. Uh, finally, let me ask you, Joel, what is in your playing rotation these days? Uh, any games striking your fancy? Uh, the as far as like newest stuff that's come out. Yeah, uh, newest games or even even old reliable standbys that you may be playing. Uh, well, I was, obviously, I, I think I probably mentioned, but I'm an ASL player, so I I always you know get a kick out of playing that. That's uh-huh. the pinnacle of complexity, but. I, I really enjoy it. It's, it's just the number one World War II system for me. Okay. Uh, as far as recent stuff goes, I really like the stuff that Academy Games has been been putting out. The, the simple games on like 1812 and 1775. I just really enjoyed those. Is that the That's, dice game? The uh... yeah, it's just real simple with cubes and dice. And okay. I mean, it's not a necessarily a simulation of the war, but it's a it's a fun game experience. Okay. Good. And you can teach them to kids. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's always a plus. I've, I've enjoyed um, uh, Freedom from them as well. A little bit more on the war game front. Uh, France France 40, I think, might be one of Mark Simonich's best games. And all Mark's games are great, but France 40 is fantastic game package. Okay, good. And I've been playing The Hunters. 
which is another solitaire game. It's not GMT, but they were selling it for Compton Press. You take over a, a World War II submarine. It's simple, small footprint. I can play it on my desk, you know. Um, yeah, that's that's some of the stuff I've been playing lately. The, the thing that surprised me about the Hunters when I first opened it, I was like, "Where, uh, where's the deck of cards?" Because <laughs> I'm yeah. so I'm so conditioned to thinking that any solitaire game has got to have a deck of cards, uh, and the Hunters doesn't do that. Uh, very interesting choice. So. Uh, all right. Well, Joel, I really appreciate you talking to me. Congratulations with uh, Navajo Wars. I, I love what you've done. I wish you the best of luck. And by golly, I can't wait to see the Comanche game. So uh, I look forward to seeing how that turns out. Well, thank you very much. All right. So uh, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope that wasn't too tedious for you if you're not into board games. Uh, and I, I hope that it might have convinced you to give Navajo Wars a try. Uh, it is <clears throat> excuse me. It is a, a difficult game. It uh it's very intricate. It definitely has a learning curve. Even as you're playing it, you, you have to be learning it. But it's a fascinating experience, and it's unlike any other board game I've played. So for that reason, I recommend it. Uh, as you might have been able to tell, one of the things that I kind of wanted to talk to Joel about, or that I've just kind of wanted to talk about, was the portrayal of Native American cultures, communities uh, in video gaming. And it, it seemed like that wasn't an area that Joel was was into very much. So I, I steered away from that. Um and maybe we'll do another podcast on that at some point. But uh, I am fascinated by the way that various video games approach the subject matter. Um, all the way back to, I think, one of the earliest instances, I don't know about earliest, but one of the most notorious instances of Native Americans in, in a video game is that horrible Custer's Revenge thing. That it's not even a real game. It's just something that somebody mocked up on an Atari 2600. It acquired a life of its own as if it was an actual game. And I think you like... This is really icky, but I think you like rape an Indian woman or something. I don't know. I've never seen it, but I've heard of it. And it's this classic instance of just, just this ugly treatment of Native Americans in video gaming. And it doesn't even exist. It's not real. It's not an actual thing that was ever on the Atari that you could go and buy. Um, some of the, uh, the other, I don't know about insulting, but more glib treatments of Native Americans in video games. I think of uh, Turok the Dinosaur Hunter. Isn't Turok supposed to be some Apache warrior or something? Uh, even Prey had a Native American, and he might have even had a horrible name like Tommy Hawk or something. Oh, I can't be that bad. Surely I've got that wrong. But uh, even Prey had a Native American lead character, and later in the game he meets his uh, his Native American Obi-Wan or whatever, an old mystic, a shaman, and uh, solicits, solicits advice and maybe even a power upgrade or something from that fella. Uh Assassin's Creed 3 recently came out, which I, I loved, uh, not necessarily because of the lead character, but I was fascinated with what they did with that character. And, uh, you know, Ubisoft has a hard time telling a consistent story with meaningful characters, but bless their French-American hearts, they, they gave it a try, and they tried to make Connor, the lead character in Assassin's Creed 3, um, uh, someone who is suspended between being European and being Native American. Uh, and there were moments where he was trying to avenge his uh, the, the mistreatment of his tribe. And uh, I, I liked what they were going for. I'm not sure it, it necessarily worked. Uh, in strategy games, you see Native Americans treated uh, with a, a very different approach. They're not making goofy little heroic characters or anything like that. Uh, it gives game makers a chance through rules to create a, 
a narrative framework in which to situate Native Americans. Uh, recently, we're seeing that. I haven't had the chance to play it, but Paradox just released an expansion for Europa Universalis IV called A Conquest of Paradise. And one of the things they've done in that is they have made the Native American factions uh, playable with new, unique mechanics that supposedly reflect the semi-nomadic state of, of them uh, and how they weren't centralized authority. They've addressed how they can tech up. And I don't know if the idea is that you can ultimately win as, say, the Pueblo, uh, but I know that they have tried to make it a richer experience. That's specifically part of what they're aiming for with that. Uh, if you look back at other strategy games, uh, one that comes to mind for me um, was the colonization game. Uh, that was originally a microprose game. It was re-released maybe uh, what, five years ago or so as a Civ Four total mod kind of released in its own package. And what you could do in that is depending on which faction you were, what kinds of bonuses you had as you were colonizing the New World, you could either meet and trade with and make friends with the Native American communities. Each one might have a different resource that you could trade for or Screw it. You just try to conquer them, burn them to the ground. Uh, so they were kind of, and you see this in a fair number of strategy games, a uh, resource. And you could choose to exploit or uh, cultivate a relationship, so to speak, with this resource. One of my favorite, and there's something a little goofy about it, but it, it was certainly, it, it kind of popped. It was a very vivid treatment of Native Americans in a strategy game. One of my favorite examples is Age of Empires Three. So in Age of Empires 3, in the base game, on any map, there would be a set of, uh, I guess you could call them nodes. And if on this node you built a little, is it a mission? There's a building. Uh, it was a, kind of a cabin. It was basically a representation of your faction. You played a European faction, setting up a presence with a local Native American tribe. And different tribes would give you different bonuses uh, economic boons, or just a, a, a straight-out uh, uh, load of resources. I seem to remember one of them, uh, it must have been one of the Plains Indians, would give you an awesome gift of just a bunch of buffalo that you could eat, and they would give you food. Uh, you would, of course, get warriors from that particular Native American tribe. Um, and then later, in I think it was the first expansion for the game, they added fully playable Native American factions, uh, complete with serious disadvantages and serious advantages. And they even had this gimmick where a Native American faction would have a, a camp. Uh, well, all the, all the sides in an RTS have a base. But in the Native American base, they had a unique structure that was a ceremonial uh, tribal fire, basically. And you could assign villagers to do a dance around it. And the type of dance you chose for instance, a war dance or a rain dance or a fertility dance would give your faction a bonus. And the more villagers you put in this dance ceremony, basically allocating part of your economy to it, the bigger the bonus. So part of what that led to is this mechanic where you would have villagers dancing around the fire in a fertility dance when you're trying to boom up and get more villagers. Uh, if you needed money, I think you could do a rain dance and make some of your farms give you more food. And then before you go into battle, you would change it. And it just involved clicking on it and selecting what the dance was. You would change it to a war dance. And all your Native American units would get a bonus in siege damage or, or whatever. It, it varied by the faction that you played. Uh, so it was this kind of finicky little mechanic, um, but it was definitely unique to, to that faction. Uh, and I think one of the, if I'm not mistaken, I believe there were three Native American factions. I 
could be screwing this up. I think they were the Iroquois, the Cherokee maybe, and there was a Mesoamerican faction. Could it have been the Aztecs? Uh, I, I forget the specifics. But I really liked how they added these factions and they they used gameplay mechanics to seriously differentiate them from the European factions. Um, so those are some examples. Uh, Rise of Nations, by the way, also had some Native American factions. In the expansion for that, called Thrones and Patriots, they did some really cool turkey stuff with some of them. Uh, was it... There were Iroquois there, I believe. I might be confusing it with the Native Americans in Age of Empires 3. But I believe there was an Iroquois faction in Rise of Nations that their army, if it was just standing still in friendly territory, would be invisible. And the idea there was to replicate the kind of guerrilla tactics that a lot of Native American warriors used. Uh, so it was always kind of uh, – it, it was fascinating to see thoughtful developers um, – trying to spin out gameplay mechanics from different Native American factions. Uh, and to just circle it all back, uh, I, I think that Navajo Wars uh, is just a stellar example of someone doing this with uh, a, an eye towards specifically modeling the experience, the culture, the situation of the Navajo. So I want to thank Joel again for sitting down and talking with me. Uh, I hope it was interesting for you, thank you. Uh, again, rate us on iTunes. Uh, we love donations, and we love when you shop on Amazon.com uh, using our little search box. Uh, I will be back next week with, and I already apologized once. I'll apologize again if you're not into board games. I'm sorry that you're getting a glut of board games, but uh, one of my favorite games recently has been a game called A Study in Emerald, created by a fellow who's been doing fantastic board games for as long as I been playing them, a guy named Martin Wallace. He will be joining me next week to talk about a study in Emerald. Uh, I hope you'll join me then, uh, and I appreciate you for uh, joining me this week, and we'll see you next week. TV.